Rachel. This is Deconstructing Disney. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome. Welcome. Hello, hello. Welcome to our 23rd full-length episode. Woo! We're going to be discussing the Black Cauldron. Ooh. Has such a, a complicated history and relationship with its fans and non-fans. Double bubble toil and trouble, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> this one's a doozy. It's from mm-hmm. 1985, and I do think this is a film that not many people have seen. Even diehard Disney fans may not have seen this film. This is the ultimate cult classic, I feel like, because it's not, like, cool, maybe, <laughs> to like this film. <laughs> it's like you really have to have a great appreciation for, like, the animation techniques that went into it. There's very specific reasons I feel like people love this film. Otherwise, baby, we haven't even seen it. Like me. Yeah. <laughs> we are going to provide you with a relatively in-depth synopsis. But to ensure we don't bore you to tears, we're going to make it a little bit interactive. Oh, I don't know what that means. And I'm excited. <laughs> All right. So, Aaron, I want you to think of two sounds... That you can quickly and easily make. Just like beep, 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 or <laughs> like something like that. What's the first sound? It's going to be beep, beep. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So anytime during my synopsis, there is a plot point that is either illogical or unexplained, you're going to say beep, beep. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Great. And I do think you have to be... You have to approach this like you are watching the movie for the first time without context. It's easy to be like, well, that was probably better explained in the books, the source material. No, Mm -hmm. just on its surface, you're watching this movie. That makes no sense. Beep, beep. Mm -hmm. Okay? Okay. Mm -hmm. What's your second sound going to be? Moo. Perfect. So anytime there is an unnecessary character, (laughs) you're going to say... Moo. All right. (laughs) The film opens on a backdrop of gray clouds with an expository voiceover. And we learn from this deep, unembodied voice that we are about to enter the mystic land of Perdean, where long ago there was a very evil king. The spirit of the evil king was captured in a black cauldron. The voiceover tells us, quote, Whoever possessed the Black Cauldron would have the power to resurrect an army of deathless warriors and with them rule the world. Beep, beep. Thank you. Why? (laughs) Exactly. Why? Why does it do that? (laughs) Great. So it's already a lot of information. We're like two minutes into the film. Cue title card. (laughs) Cut to a quaint rural scene. And I did want to mention... This is the first movie where all of the credits are at the end. Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So right after that title card, we cut to another scene. It's reminiscent of medieval Europe. We are in the home of Dalbin, an older white man who is very concerned about the machinations of the Horned King. Now, importantly, the Horned King is not the same 
evil king spirit who was captured in the Black Cauldron. That's like a totally mm-hmm. separate king. Now there's this horned king. Dalbin also has a beloved pig, Henwen, who is cared for by our main protagonist, Tarin, an adolescent white boy who dreams of becoming a warrior. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. So Henwen, again, the pig, the pig has psychic powers such that she... She's an oracular pig. <laughs> right. So she can conjure visions of things that are happening elsewhere. Beep, beep. Why can Henwin <laughs> see the, the future, the present, elsewhere? Why? Why? Exactly. Great question. Unanswered. <laughs> okay. So... She has these powers for whatever reason, uses them to reveal to Dalbin and Tarin that the Horned King now knows that Henwin exists somehow and wants to use Henwin's powers to locate the Black Cauldron. Okay, to prevent this, Tarin must take Henwin into hiding near the Forbidden Forest. But on their way there, Tarin becomes distracted by his daydreams of becoming a warrior <laughs> And loses Henwin. As he looks for Henwin, Tarin encounters Gurgi, a creature mm. who attempts to steal an apple from Tarin, also known as a munching crunching. <laughs> <laughs> Munchings and crunchings. <laughs> I paused when I said creature because Gurgi is a dog like thing? Man. Beast, yeah. I think I saw him called mm-hmm. occasionally. He's a fuzzy kind of monkey, mustachioed, mm-hmm. <laughs> small humanoid thing. Mm-hmm. He's very fluffy. What his appearance reminded me of was the character of Peg from Lady and the Tramp. Oh my gosh. Who sings yes. he's a tramp. <laughs> yes with the fur like kind of coming over the eyes exactly Mm -hmm. so those are now just interchangeable in my mind yep so there's this whole interaction between Tarin and Gurgi and then suddenly Tarin hears Henwin squealing as two dragons capture her and whisk her away to the castle of the horned king Tarin follows and sneaks into the castle to rescue Henwin. He manages to help Henwin escape, but he himself is captured and detained. Shortly after being thrown in the dungeon, a white adolescent girl and a glowing orb emerge from a trapdoor in the floor. Baby, <laughs> thank you. Why is there a glowing orb? <laughs> why is there a glowing orb? If this character, who we will soon learn is Princess Elon Wee, if she's also a captive, why is she able to just come up through a trapdoor in the floor? Like, it felt like she's escaped. Like, or she's found a way out of her cell and just kind of, like, wanders the castle. Yeah. But no one ever notices, and, like, she probably gets back to her cell and no one ever cares. But now she's decided to escape? I don't know. But also, she said she was captured... Because the Horned King wanted the orb? Yes. Her bobble. What does it do? (laughs) Apparently, the Horned King thought that her bobble could somehow help him locate the Black Cauldron. Right. But it couldn't. Right. Because it's just a glowing orb, and that's it. Yep. So that's cool. 
So now Taran and Princess Elanui are roaming the castle and they find the tomb of a prior king. And Taran takes the sword from atop the king's coffin. The sword conveniently comes in handy when it turns out to be magical and allows them to escape the castle along with fellow captive Fluter Flam. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Why is Fluter Flam in this? Unclear. Just one extra character who serves no apparent narrative purpose, but he is a traveling bard whose harp can distinguish truth from falsehood. So was presumably also captured to help the Horned King discern the location of the Black Cauldron. Mm -hmm. But the harp is never actively used. Nope. It's, it's such a red herring of like, oh, cool, this useful tool that we can use to interrogate people or something. Like, no, it just mostly is occasionally there for comedic effect. Yep. Wandering the forest, the group, Fluterflam, Elanwi, Tarin, I think that's it. Is Gurgi back yet? I don't know. Don't remember. Maybe. <laughs> the group falls into a magical whirlpool, which transports them to the dwelling of the fair folk. Beep. Beep. Yeah. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess the fair folk... Well, you'll get to this in a moment. They help them. But, like, why is there the whirlpool and why is it suck them in and yep, why? All of it. I agree. The fair folk have taken Henwin, the pig, in. And so now Taran and Henwin are reunited. And the fair folk inform the group that the Black Cauldron is in the marshes of Morva. And they decide, okay, we got to get to the Black Cauldron before the Horned King does. One of the feral folk agree to take Henwin home, but the rest of the group are going to go to the marshes of Morva, and they're going to be led there by one of the feral folk, Dolly. Kind of moo. Yeah. I mean, I guess he has to help them get there. Does he? But, like, he is such an unnecessary character. I mean, presumably maps exist, so, like, <laughs> draw them a map, send them on right, their Right, or they could have just, like, tapped them with magic and transported them. Yeah. So they do reach Morva and they locate the Black Cauldron in the cottage of three witches who trade them the cauldron for the magical sword that Taran had acquired from the castle tomb. Once the trade is done, the witches then inform them that the only way to prevent the Black Cauldron from being used to summon a deathless army is for someone to willingly climb into it sacrificing themselves and dying. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Now, I just want to point out, there's this whole back and forth thing where the witches are like, we tricked them. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's like, but you didn't really? Right. They're like, we told you that you could have the cauldron. We didn't tell you that you wouldn't be able to use it. And it's like, well, that wasn't really part of the deal, right? Obviously, because of the sacrifice that, like, they think, like, you don't know that in order to do what you need to do, one of you has to kill yourselves, essentially. Mm -hmm. Or that, like, the cauldron won't be controlled, a.k.a. it will consume you no matter what mm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where I came out on that. Of Like, we tricked you because you can have the cauldron, but the cauldron in the end will have you <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> 
Well, that is a much better way to phrase that, and they probably should have used that as dialogue. Yeah, obviously I should have been writing this script. Yeah, I mean, literally anyone else probably could have done a better job. (laughs) Okay, at this moment, the group discover that they have been followed by the Horned King's minions who capture them and take them and the Black Cauldron back to the castle. The Horned King then uses the cauldron to raise his cauldron-born army of skeletons. Ah! Taran moves to throw himself into the cauldron, but Gurgi dives in before him in order to prevent his friend from sacrificing himself. Horrible. It's horrible. The magical force of the cauldron destroys the skeleton army and the Horned King and the castle, as the gang of protagonists narrowly escape. And I do just want to mention that there's this weird moment of like false tension in the climax where it's like, oh, maybe Taran's going to get sucked into the cauldron. Mm-hmm. No, the Horned King is. No, Taran. And it's like, what? Yeah, it was also weird because like if you're thinking of like how far they are from the cauldron, Taran yeah. is like holding onto this pillar trying not to get sucked in and the horn king is like standing next to him like <laughs> oh, like my evil plan and then like Tarin like kicks him yeah so the horn king ends up two steps closer to the cauldron and suddenly he's being like aggressively sucked in yeah and it's like why didn't he just get pulled in before <laughs> like what's yeah. happening the physics of this magic are questionable well i guess it is magic that's yeah. what someone's gonna say to us right <laughs> all right So they've escaped the castle. The cauldron has sucked everything in. The three witches reappear in the clouds to retrieve the cauldron because they want it back. I don't know why. And Taran asks them to revive Gurgi in exchange, which they do. The true winner is friendship. (laughs) Taran and Princess Elanwi kiss. Oh, beep beep. Right. I mean, they did sort of set up this romance, but it felt very Fox and the Hound, which I might bring up again later. Mm. There's a brief scene with Dalbin, the old guy from the beginning, and Dolly, the fairy, looking at each other conspiratorially. The end. So you know that I have not seen this movie before. I said that last time we recorded. Right. So I don't have any memories of past viewings. I've seen the image of the movie poster. Gurgi has always confused me so much when I have seen images of him because in my head he has turned into kind of like a Merlin character. And then I look at him and I'm like, is it a person? like, (laughs) Like I had no context and created this whole false narrative. So I'm glad that that has all been cleared up. A Merlin character, like you thought he was a wise old creature who was guiding Taran somehow. Interesting. Yeah, like all the hair on him, I guess, in looking at those images quickly. Because usually he's like, he's climbing on top of Taran or something. So like, I don't think I could see his whole body a lot of the time. So he just looked like a small, hairy old man. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought he was some kind of like magical advisor character. And in reality, that could not be further from the truth in terms of their dynamic. Yeah, definitely. Though it's interesting you bring up Merlin because I did get some Sword in the Stone vibes at the beginning with the dynamic Mm -hmm. between Dalbin and Taran. Yeah, definitely. But you have seen this movie before. So what memories do you have of it and impressions from when you were younger? So 
this is interesting. I was convinced that I had seen this movie once, if not twice or three times. Mm. Watching it, I had no memory of it whatsoever. There was not a single scene that seemed in (laughs) any way familiar to me. So now I'm questioning whether I have actually seen it before, and I think I maybe haven't. Oh, weird. Did you think you like conflated it with a different film? Maybe. I think maybe I conflated it with parts of Sword in the Stone. Yeah, that's fair. Because I think the witches and Mad Madam Mim overlapped in my brain. Mm-hmm. I have certainly been aware of it and so come across snippets of plot descriptions or images like the movie poster, as you said, and then kind of my my brain filled in the rest of the details. Yeah. When people have mentioned the Black Cauldron or the Sword in the Stone prior to us doing this podcast, I definitely like didn't really know the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't blame you if that was also true for you. Yeah. So it was a very strange viewing experience because I was trying to look for moments that I remembered and wasn't Mm -hmm. finding any in the midst of this swirling nonsense plot. And so (laughs) it was was not enjoyable viewing for sure. Clearly, neither of us are speaking very highly of it, (laughs) but... What was your experience watching like? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was fascinated by how little sense things made. I was disappointed there were no songs. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that that was a bummer. But I know you're going to talk a lot about the animation. Mm -hmm. And there were several moments that were really, I thought, pretty awesome animation wise mm-hmm. can i mention a couple now or will we talk sure, about it yeah so the first one was when the dragons are chasing henwen yes right mm-hmm. there's this perspective that's used i guess like you're looking at it from the view of the dragon which is very cool mm-hmm. there is also a moment Taran and Gurgi are on this rocky cliff. Yeah. It looks like the animation is superimposed over a film of like purple smoke. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. very cool. I liked that, but it also like it showed inexperience with doing that because it was like the, the outline was so stark. It yes. was very clearly not well integrated, but it was like, ooh, I see what you're trying to do. Like, mm-hmm. okay, you'll get there. Yes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. It was like, okay, some new and exciting innovations are on the horizon, but Mm -hmm. they haven't quite mastered the use of those innovations yet. Yeah. But it was taking me back to the invention of the multiplane camera. I was like, okay, like Mm -hmm. we're in the next wave of innovation when it comes to animation. We're not just doing the same thing over and over to produce these really predictable and reliably performing films like the Aristocats and Fox and the Hound and, you know, doing Mm -hmm. the same thing over and over. It's interesting you bring up that particular technology because the film opens with a multiplane camera pane where they like zoom through two layers of like a little bit of woods and like the Mm -hmm. walkway Mm -hmm. to get to the 
cottage in the beginning and then the rest of it after that is all in like the same style they don't use the multiplane camera again so it's like paying homage to the the technological history and then moving forward which was very clever and part of the whole design even if it didn't all quite work mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah so what was your experience viewing it and i'm also wondering did paul watch it with you Paul did, yes. <laughs> so I want to know how what you thought of it, and I want to know what Paul thought of it. So Paul had also never seen it, and this is one that like he knew was coming up, so he wanted to watch it with me whenever that happened. We didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, in general, it was just kind of like, what? And like, why are we here? And how did we get here? And like that kind of reaction over and over again. The plot in a sort of Disney way makes sense. Hmm. Maybe not total sense, but like Pinocchio does random things too. And Mm. I have those same complaints about Pinocchio, but it's like, this isn't, you know, these writers suddenly did something terrible. There's kind of precedent for like, we want these scenes to be part of it. So let's stitch them together in the best way we can. Mm -hmm. They've been telling such linear stories recently that I think the audience isn't going to accept that anymore. And obviously a modern audience is not going to accept that. But yeah, generally we were confused. We thought it was really dark. Mm -hmm. The characters are kind of all annoying in their own unique ways. (laughs) Completely agree. But I think our biggest continuing question was... How is Gurgi related to Andy Serkis's Smeagol in the Lord of the Rings trilogy? I am so glad that you brought that up. And I, I want to talk more about that. Yeah, he's like the OG Smeagol, right? Yeah. Oh, poor miserable Gurgi deserves fierce smackings and whackings on his poor tender head. I was left with no munchings and crunching. so i could not find any evidence that andy circus actually based his performance on gurgi language choices of both Gollum slash smeagol and gurgi are very similar from the source material Mm. so it's possible that like andy circus just kind of Maybe through osmosis, like that Gurgi voice is in there somewhere. But in general, he just kind of created this new character based on what he had from Tolkien. But I have trouble believing that because so many of Gurgi's mannerisms are the same as Andy Serkis's Smeagol of like the repeated use of master. And he's kind of duplicitous, steals stuff and then lies about it and tries to be really sweet. And obviously the actual like voice and accent and speech patterns are almost identical. Blesses and splashes, precious. That's a meaty mouthful. <laughs> so I have no proof. No one's found the proof. Andy Circus hasn't said anything or like actually answered that question. Mm-hmm. But in my mind, he must have seen this at some point and like at least subconsciously taken inspiration. It's worth noting, and I'll talk more about the source material for The Black Cauldron, but the Lord of the Rings trilogy was published before Mm -hmm. the source material for The Black Cauldron. So arguably the character of Smeagol 
existed before the character of Gurgi did. It's also like Chicken and the Egg. Right. Was Disney Gurgi inspired a little bit by Smeagol and then Andy Serkis was inspired by that, but also inspired by the source material, like which came first and who saw what. And Mm -hmm. there have been other Gollums and Smeagols that have had different voices and accents and things. Mm. So those people didn't do the same thing. So why did Serkis take this particular interpretation? And of course, that's one of the ones that has become the most well-known. So all very complicated and I have no clear answers. (laughs) I also saw great similarity between Gurgi and Dobby in Harry Mm. Potter. Yeah, that's true too. Yes. And so I wonder if there's just this common thread of subservience and timidity. Yeah. And I think the language is the same. It's just that like lisp that is so mm-hmm. iconically Smeagol mm-hmm. for our generation. That lisp also being the way that Gurgi speaks makes him more, those two sound more similar than Gurgi sounds to Dobby. Mm. But Dobby also does that kind of like Yoda speech sometime, which again, maybe Yoda is kind of in that realm too. Or mm-hmm. And then Dobby obviously uses the word master as well for Harry. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It is. Part of why I was wondering if Paul had watched it is because I know that he, as well as you, are fans of fantasy, Mm -hmm. especially like high fantasy as a genre, which this certainly falls within. I am not. That's probably one of my least favorite genres. (laughs) And so I was curious if having an affinity for that type of story influenced your enjoyment of the film at all but it sounds like no (laughs) no yeah no I mean (laughs) we know what to expect from Disney so it wasn't like a brand new film that maybe we would have watched because of its ties to fantasy if we had known nothing else about it don't think it struck us as like a fantasy movie as much as a like Disney doing weird stuff (laughs) movie (laughs) yeah although while I was doing my research, I learned more about the source material, which you'll talk about in a moment. And I was telling Paul, this sounds like the kind of thing you would have loved as a kid. Mm -hmm. The books sound very good. And I think neither of us had read them. But I think that would have been a better entrance point for Dane for (laughs) both of us. (laughs) Well, that's a great segue. Why don't I talk more about the books upon which this film was based. Yes, please. As you said, it's a series of books, specifically a series of five books called The Chronicles of Perdean, written by American author Lloyd Alexander, and these were published throughout the 1960s. The second book in the series of five is entitled The Black Cauldron. However, the film is loosely based on plot points from several of the books, not just the second one. The fifth and final book in the series, entitled The High King, was awarded the Newbery Medal of Honor in 1969. That's a huge deal. Like, huge. These books have to be very good. (laughs) Yes, yes. Alexander is an interesting person, but at the end of the day, just kind of another white guy author. I think more than anything, he did have an interest in Welsh mythology, and that inspired these books in part. He wrote 48 books in his lifetime, many of them children's fantasy novels. 
and he passed away in 2007. The one other thing that I wanted to share about Lloyd Alexander was his comment on the film adaptation, The Black Cauldron, Mm. which was, Mm -hmm. quote, first, I have to say, there is no resemblance between the movie and the book. (laughs) Having said that, the movie in itself, purely as a movie, I found to be very enjoyable, end quote. (laughs) Well, there you go. It's not, it has nothing to do with my books. My books are way better. Right. Go read my books, obviously. But like, Disney's going to be mad at me if I say it was bad. So it's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> cool. All right. You want to know more about how those five books turned into a not so great movie? I would love to know more. <laughs> Lay it on me. Excellent. There's a lot of stuff happening during the time that the Black Cauldron was being created. And we're getting into a a sticky time in the corporate structure of Disney as well, which I think is important for us to know about as we move into the next couple films, because a lot of stuff is changing at Disney. Mm-hmm. But the beginnings of the Black Cauldron go back to 1971, when Disney optioned the film rights to Lloyd Alexander's five book series. They officially started story development in 1973, though, so the film was 12 years in the making by the time it released, which is a long time. Mm -hmm. And also, that means all of the history we've talked about since our Robin Hood episode, like, all of that applies to this film, too, because it was always in various animators' hands as they were also making all of those films. Also important to note that in the last 10-ish years, we've seen other players enter the family-friendly entertainment side of Hollywood Mm. in a way that was now starting to compete with Disney and also inspiring Disney animators and writers and producers to do new things. So most notably for The Black Cauldron, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg have released both A New Hope and Raiders of the Lost Ark before real work started on this film before like the script went down and whatnot. And also Don Bluth's The Secret of Nim would come out in 1982, which is kind of mid development here. So they were looking to rival those films, have something that would be in the same area, be as successful, which you can kind of see in the way that the black cauldron operates, Mm -hmm. but also they wanted to blow them out of the water. Like, the Secret of Nim, people were talking about how it's like attention to detail was was like Snow White and Pinocchio. And Disney was like, well, we can't have that. <laughs> we have to be the best at doing this. Mm-hmm. So they went for they went for a really big swing here. Yeah, swing and a miss, I think. Yeah. They would all probably say so too. During all this time, Ron Miller, Walt Disney's son-in-law, has been making his way up through the Disney hierarchy, producing live-action films and animated films until he was made president of Walt Disney Productions in 1980, and he would become CEO in 1983. Miller, in particular, wanted to capture the wow factor of the original Disney animated films while telling an epic story like those other contemporary studios, He didn't want to do any more like simple, safe projects in the way that he viewed the Aristocats or Robin Hood, like those softer films. But arguably, 
the Black Cauldron was also kind of safe in its own way, like trying to go back to Disney fundamentals rather than pushing something new. Like they keep just trying to go back to what was working before. Recapture the magic. Exactly. He particularly wanted to pull in a teen audience because Mm. it was a group that when surveyed at the time said they'd never be caught dead watching a Disney film. (laughs) But of course, they'll watch Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. And those films also aren't striving for a G rating. So maybe that's your reason. Mm -hmm. But Miller wanted to get them into the theater and he felt the Black Cauldron was just the story to do that. And he got the animation team working on it in earnest in the late 70s, aiming for a 1980 release date originally. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Ollie Johnson and Frank Thomas didn't work on the film, but they were apparently really big supporters of it being made, saying that it could be the studio's next Snow White, that it would start a whole new golden age if done right. Veteran artist Mel Shaw created beautiful concept art pieces for the film. And that was when Miller started to get worried that the young animators wouldn't be able to match this vision that they've all started Mm -hmm. pushing. Mm -hmm. So to give them time to gain experience, they then pushed the project back to a Christmas 1984 release and moved up the release of The Fox and the Hound. Okay. So let all these guys practice a little bit Mm -hmm. before we hand them the next Snow White. Right. So they thought. John Musker was the original director of the film, but he ended up trying to add too much comedy into it. Hmm. So when The Fox and the Found finished, Art Stevens, Richard Rich, Ted Berman, and Dave Michener hopped onto the project, and Miller soon felt that there were, like, too many cooks in the kitchen, essentially. Yeah. So in 1980, he removed Stevens as producer and replaced him with Joe Hale, who was a longtime layout artist at Disney, And true production work began then as Hale whittled away at the five-book series. He developed the plot, deciding it was going to be based on the first two books. He turned the Horn King into a major villain because the Horn King was, like, kind of a side character who ends up, like, dying in, like, the first or second book. Mm. Can we talk about the Horn King real quick? Sure. He's just a skeleton with horns. I don't know, because, like, he's different than the other skeletons. Yeah. I guess he does have skin kind of. on his hands. Yes. Yeah, he looks like Skeletor. Yes, he does. <laughs> yes. All right. I just wanted to acknowledge that, that he's kind of a weird villain. Yeah. And we don't know his backstory or really understand his motivation. But you know, Rachel, not every villain needs a background origin story, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Just let them be evil. Did you read that uh, review of Cruella that I sent you? I did, yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I haven't watched it. Me either. It's premiere access on Disney Plus, so yeah. I'm waiting for I'm sorry. it to downgrade a little. I'm sorry, Disney. I'm not paying you 30 bucks for that one. 30 bucks, I know, right? That's a lot. I get how they figure out the price, because if I went with Paul and we both bought a ticket and we bought some popcorn and some sodas, we would pay that much money. Of course. But I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. So <laughs> Exactly. And like if you had four or five or six or however many people in your household, then that price becomes a lot more 
yes reasonable Mm -hmm. but right if it's just the two of you i guess technically if it's just the four of us since we share our disney plus account rachel don't tell don't tell this is a public podcast (laughs) (laughs) Uh, anyway john musker and ron clements were also removed from the film for creative differences oh and they started working on a new project called Basil of Baker Street. Oh, really? (laughs) Which I don't know. Whatever happened to that? Oh, what happened? I don't know. (laughs) We'll find out next time. Just turned into the greatest film of all time. That's all. (laughs) I can't wait. You've hyped this movie up. It's going to disappoint you so much. (laughs) I'm sure of it because I've hyped it. I've gone too far with the hype. One major decision (laughs) that was. I have a lot to say. One major decision that was meant to capture some of the old Disney magic for the film was to shoot the film in Super Technorama 70 millimeter. Whoa. Rachel, can you remember what the last film that was shot in Super Technorama 70 millimeter was? Fantasia? It's one you like a lot. The Rescuers? No. It's Sleeping Beauty. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. It's the super widescreen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I do like Sleeping Beauty. Cool. I would have gotten there eventually. Yeah, it's taking too long. So they wanted to use that aspect ratio, again, to give it the grandness of, you know, that Sleeping Beauty had really emphasized the art, let the background be shown off, all that kind of stuff. They also used six-track Dolby sound and planned to have the first holographic effect in an animated film. When the cauldron born were supposed to rise out of the cauldron, they wanted them to like loom out over the audience. So they were working on basically developing like the first 3D technology. And then they realized that in order for this to work, they would then have to create a holographic projection system that all the theaters could use Mm -hmm. and that was never ever going to happen the theaters were never gonna buy it just to show this movie it was going to be way too expensive it would have been fantasia sound all over again yes exactly whatever that was called another invention at the time was by david w spencer he invented the animation photo transfer process called APT, which was first used on the Black Cauldron, and it allowed the rough animation to be photographed, and the negative could be copied onto plastic cell sheets to transfer the lines and the color. Oh, wow. Which was huge. Yeah. This is the first time they could, like, consistently transfer color, which essentially eliminated the need for hand inking. But the APT-transferred line art started to fade off the cells over time. So they couldn't use it reliably and they had to go back to using the existing xerographic process anyway. So didn't really work. It was kind of a failure, but he did win a technical Oscar for the process. Oh, okay. That's cool. Sure. Unfortunately, they didn't have time to even figure out how to make it work because it was rendered obsolete by the computer (laughs) a couple years. (laughs) Bummer. (laughs) Sorry, Spencer. (laughs) Finally, The Black Cauldron was the first film released that used computer-generated animation for Hmm. the bubbles, the boat, the floating orb that Ellen Wee hangs out with, Mm -hmm. and the cauldron itself. Oh. They, like 
used the technology to create this like 3D image that they could then like move and rotate and animate for the first time. But I want to say that this technology was actually first developed by the people working on Basil of Baker Street in the background. Oh. And then that was looking so cool that the people working on the Black Cauldron were like, hey, come over here and make some awesome effects for us on our movie. So the Black Cauldron was the first movie released using that technology, but it was developed for what would become the Great Mouse Detective. Okay. Good to know. Because I read a couple interviews where people were like, it wasn't for the Black Cauldron. It was for (laughs) Basil of Baker Street. No one gets that right. (laughs) I'm going to get it right. (laughs) So that's all the cool, neat stuff that they were working with trying to make happen. Wasn't all going super smoothly, but like they were trying to be innovative. Mm -hmm. And then in 1982, the motion picture screen cartoonists, local 839 union, called a strike. Oh, yeah. Second time an animator strike has put a wrench in the system for Disney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this one wasn't led by Disney animators, but obviously a bunch of them were members of this union, so it affected all of the projects that were ongoing at the time. Sure. The strike was over studios sending large amounts of animation work overseas, particularly to Japan and South Korea, mm-hmm. and laying off American workers. The foreign animators in other countries were particularly being used for TV, mm. and I honestly don't know if Disney was using foreign animators for its departments. It might have been. I didn't find that information. Mm-hmm. But Disney did say during this time that it would never include the protective, quote, runaway production language that the union was advocating for in its contracts. Ah. So still happy to be part of the problem. <laughs> yep. Animators at Disney were suddenly sent home and were picketing with animators from other studios like Hanna-Barbera. Many employees were supportive of the cause overall, but for some it was hard to support the union when it meant you weren't getting paid while the strike went on. Right. So there was some animosity, but also they weren't getting paid much to begin with, and now they can't work for whatever length of time this strike goes on. Mm. The strike fell apart when Disney animators learned that they could resign their union membership and come back to work with no repercussions. So the union had to call off the strike after 50% of their union members at Disney canceled their memberships. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the union basically left with nothing, had to leave negotiations, and the Disney animators went back to work. (laughs) Okay. So the animators returned and work on the Black Cauldron moved forward steadily until 1983 when studio leadership underwent a pretty major shakeup. So this is like the big stuff now. Okay. The board of directors was sincerely wondering if the animation division of Disney was worth keeping around. Mm -hmm. And Roy E. Disney, Walt's nephew, original Roy's son, was basically the only voice on the board arguing for the importance of animation at Disney. Wow. He had a really cool quote in the Waking Sleeping Beauty documentary that I started watching to go along with this research where he said, without animation, all that Disney does is basically become a museum because it's all just paying homage to like the history and what they had previously created mm. without creating anything new. Mm-hmm. Like, that is a very nice way to frame it. I'm sure the people in live action... Don't agree. (laughs) (laughs) 
with the board unable to act on anything, Roy resigned to basically let them do something to force action. But at the same time, corporate raider Saul Steinberg swooped in and bought a bunch of stock because Disney was severely undervalued at the time. Mm. And he threatened to use his controlling shareholder power to dismantle the company. Wow. Like he was going to separate it and sell it off to other studios. And it was terrifying. (laughs) He was eventually bought off by the board members with $52 million. Oh my goodness. But the board directors blamed current leadership, mainly Ron Miller, for allowing the company to end up in this position Mm -hmm. by not making enough money, by not pushing the animation envelope, all of this stuff. Instead of eliminating the animation division altogether, though, they asked Ron Miller to resign as CEO in September 1984 and replaced him with Michael Eisner from Paramount Pictures Mm -hmm. and hired Frank Wells as president. Mm -hmm. So we are moving into the Eisner era. Yep. A brief moment to give Ron Miller his flowers because he seems like a really lovely man. (laughs) (laughs) He was a pro football player for the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah. Which I didn't know. That's super cool. I know. But also, (laughs) what were his qualifications to be CEO of Disney Corp? He married Diane Disney. Oh, okay. Cool. So nepotism. (laughs) Love it. To begin with, yes, but he did genuinely work his way up through the company. <laughs> Walt saw him get hurt in a football game and was like, I don't want to have to take care of your fatherless children. Come work for me instead of playing football. Wow. <laughs> and Ron Miller apparently said yes. Walt gave him producer positions and he worked his way up and like genuinely was pretty good at his job. He was a good producer. Walt liked what he was doing and he became Walt's like chosen successor as Walt was getting older Mm -hmm. and had kind of a what would Walt do attitude when they were dealing with difficult problems over the past 10 years while he was a producer. He worked on developing Epcot He helped create Touchstone Pictures, Mm. which allowed Disney to make PG-13 movies under an alternate label, which was huge. And Touchstone's first film, Splash, starring Tom Hanks, grossed $70 million on an $8 million budget. That's pretty good. I mean, it's really good. (laughs) Splash, great film, so. Never seen it. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't surprise me at all. He's got Tom Hanks. I'm a little more interested now. Yeah. (laughs) He was also an innovator and was one of the first people to encourage experimenting with computer animation for Tron in 1982. Mm -hmm. So he kind of paved the way for other animators to play with that technology. And he acquired the film rights to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which would not be released during his time there, obviously. But like that was a huge film for them, too. Mm -hmm. So. He did a lot of great stuff. Sure. He just was kind of soft, I guess, is probably how the other people would have seen him. Fair. So Eisner and Wells show up, and they change the focus from employee and customer experience to stock price, basically. Eisner brought in Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was also from Paramount, to head motion pictures, Eisner and Katzenberg were shown the nearly finished version of the Black Cauldron right after they arrived, and they were not impressed. Mm. (laughs) 
at that same time, the movie was screened for a test audience, and it's reported that children were so terrified of the original <laughs> cut of the film that they like fled the theater in tears. <laughs> <laughs> so that didn't go over very well with new management mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i mean hey if it's making little kids cry i bet that's gonna make the teens want to see it yeah there you go so as a result of that horrible screening and because he felt the film was too long in general katzenberg insisted that they edit the finished film and remove 10 minutes to which joe hale responded you can't edit finished animation and there there's no such thing as backup footage or outtakes we can't do it so katzenberg called his bluff and went to the editing bay and started editing the film himself wow <laughs> so joe hale told eisner what was happening and eisner stopped katzenberg but katzenberg still insisted that changes needed to be made so the film was pushed another six months to july 1985 that was the official release now so that the film could be modified. And Joe Hale was fired not long after that. Ooh. The film has been cleaned up for the recent like DVD and Blu-ray releases. I also for the, the streaming one that we watched on Disney Plus. But because of this last minute modification, six months, the original theatrical release had a number of like really choppy moments and the music was almost unidentifiable because Katzenberg wanted some of the most climactic and therefore most frightening scenes to be removed and reanimated, like the Cauldron Born scene was apparently a lot longer and a lot more gruesome. Mm. And there was like an opening scene of like a child being attacked by a dragon <laughs> originally and like all this stuff mm -hmm. that got cut. Mentioning music, the soundtrack was composed and conducted by Elmer Bernstein. Elmer had previously composed Magnificent Seven to Kill a Mockingbird, Ghostbusters, and he would do Wild Wild West, which what? I think is amazing. <laughs> that is so amazing. The worst <laughs> film of all time. I love it. Whoa, a great film. <laughs> what are you talking about? <sighs> So apparently Elmer Bernstein created this like beautiful score to go along with this epic movie. And then Katzenberg told them to cut all the best parts of it, basically. And so you don't really get any of that full effect in the film, yeah. which is very sad. But The Black Cauldron was released in North America on July 24th, 1985. And it would be the first Disney film to earn a PG rating. Mm-hmm. And it probably would have been PG-13 or worse if they hadn't done all the cuts that they did. The film's budget was publicly reported at $25 million, which is already ridiculous. Yeah. But later insider reports actually put it closer to $44 million. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's absurd. Yes. Absurd, absurd, absurd. That's so much more expensive than any film we've talked about so far. Yeah, and for such an <laughs> underwhelming product. I know. They put so much work and so much new technology and stuff into this and also paid so many animators over the course of 12 years. Mm -hmm. Just oh became completely overwrought. Exactly. Its domestic run came to a close after only four weeks. Yikes. And it only grossed $21.2 million Oof. in the U.S. Yeah. 
And that's less than like prior Disney films. Never mind what they were hoping this one would actually make. Uh-huh. To make matters worse, every article I read mentioned this. So clearly Disney was really beaten up about it. <laughs> the film was also beaten at the box office by the Care Bears movie. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> That was made by a small animation company in Canada called Nelvana. Oh. Which I've never heard of before, but Same, I don't know yeah. much about other studios. So they were very upset about this. <laughs> People believe that uh, part of the reason that it didn't do well right off the bat was because early marketing and critical reviews of the film all focused on like how scary and dark it was. So parents didn't want to bring their kids. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. The film put the animation department even further in jeopardy, earning it the title, The Film That Almost Killed Disney. The film would never be re-released in theaters, and it only came out on home video in 1998 after thousands of animation fans wrote to Disney asking for it to be released. Wow. Critical reception was mostly bad, but like had some niceties. <laughs> there was one person who loved this movie and that's Roger Ebert. <laughs> wow. Okay, Roger. What did he have to say? He gave the film 3.5 out of four stars and said, quote, it's a rip roaring tale of sword, sorcery, evil and revenge, magic and pluck and luck. And it takes us on a journey through a kingdom of some of the most memorable characters in any Disney film. Does it, Roger? Yeah. Like, Does it? Most memorable? So what did everyone else think? Everyone else was a little bit more accurate, in my opinion. Charles Solomon of the Los Angeles Times felt that if, quote, its script and direction were equal to the animation, Cauldron would have been a masterpiece to rank with Snow White and Pinocchio instead of the frustrating, beautiful, exciting, and ultimately unsatisfying film that it is. Agreed. I think so much of the problem was the script. Mm-hmm. Know who would agree with you? Michael Eisner. Ah, <laughs> me and Mikey. Same brain. Same brain. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> One more. Charles Champlin from the Los Angeles Times wrote that the Black Cauldron, quote, lacks the simplicity and the clarity of great fairy tales, or the child-sized wonder of Marjorie Sharp stories that mm. became The Rescuers, the last really successful Disney animated feature. A lot of the way the film seems to be dutifully following a rather cumbersome and not overly attractive story. I hope that Disney, despite this and other mixed notices, will risk another animated feature despite the cost. There is nothing else like them, and when the words justify the pictures, they live forever. Hmm. Just like very kind. That like review in particular re reminded me of the reviews around when Walt died mm. and the critics like wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. So after the Black Cauldron, Eisner and Katzenberg had to decide what to do with the animation department. And Roy E. Disney returned before the end of 1984 and asked Eisner to put him in charge of animation. Eisner agreed, but because of the Black Cauldron's poor performance, he ordered animators to put aside their process of developing a script from art and storyboards, which is how they had always done it, mm. and to instead develop storyboards from a script in the hopes that the studio would focus more on the story in the future. Interesting. Which okay. Exactly what you just yeah. said, basically. Yeah. I had no idea that they did it the other way around. Yeah. I think, I mean, they've always been so focused on 
art and mm. creating a character who's compelling and then being like, what's the story that this character tells? Right. Lastly, Dan Coy, writing for Slate, said that Katzenberg educated himself on Disney history after the Black Cauldron and, quote, became convinced that animation was a key to the company's future success, mm. but on his terms, cheap and fast, Cauldron's flop could have killed Disney animation, and instead it gave Katzenberg an excuse to remake how the way the studio worked, end quote. So the Black Cauldron would be the last animated film completed in the original animation building of the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, because in order to create offices for the stars of the live-action films, Jeffrey Katzenberg kicked the animators out and stuck <laughs> them in a warehouse in Glendale. And I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about that next time, because that is where they did all the work on The Great Mouse Detective, pretty much. Okay. That was a lot. Yeah. This was a really pivotal film for Disney Animation mm -hmm. Studios in a lot of different ways. Kind of a fulcrum of staff, of methods, of target demographic. Mm-hmm. I'm making my way through Waking Sleeping Beauty, the documentary on Disney+. Plus. Everyone should go watch it. That's Aaron's recommendation for this week because it's really fascinating and gives an inside look at that basically 1984 to 1994 at the Disney Studios. And I, I watched the first 25 minutes and then I stopped because I didn't want spoilers <laughs> for The Great Mouse Detective. Yeah, I mean, I was saving that as a recommendation for oh, like a later episode, but uh, that's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll figure out a different one. Whatever. Sorry. It's good. Should we talk about some themes? Yeah, we definitely should. Should we go back to our, our old classic right off the bat and talk about some, some misogyny and some gender roles? I think we absolutely should. Let's begin our discussion of misogyny by going character by character with some of the female presenting characters that we have. Sure. The first of which is Henwin. We can deduce that she is female because she has eyelashes. Mm -hmm. No men have eyelashes. Right. <laughs> they just get all that dust in their eyes. You think they would cry a lot more, honestly. You would think. Uh, they're just so strong. Wow. Wow. So strong. So masculine. So Henwin is the only female character for the first 25 minutes. Yeah. About to the point where like it had been long enough that I wrote down in my notebook. Is the pig the only female character? Mm -hmm. Question mark. Because <laughs> I had forgotten that alone we existed. But I genuinely was like oh no, is this the only female character? And all the men want to use her for her abilities and want to imprison her. And then when the the Horned King is trying to make Taryn get Henwin to tell him where the Black Cauldron is, he makes a variety of threats and eventually Taryn says, okay, I'll make her tell you. And I'm like, how? how do you know how to control the oracular pig? Because you haven't shown that ability. You basically you put a bowl of water in front of her and she either sticks her nose in or she doesn't. Yeah. Like. Yep. So the next female character that we meet, as you mentioned, pretty far into the film is Princess Elanwi. So a princess who is never really mentioned when speaking of Disney princesses. Yep, I had the same thought. But 
that's her title. That's how she introduces herself. That's how other people refer to her. Mm-hmm. Though at one point, someone does refer to her as a scullery maid, which was yeah confusing. Yeah, the Horned King calls her a scullery maid. I really thought that she was maybe pretending to be a princess mm-hmm. to like make Taryn like her or something. And then the Horned King being like, a scullery maid and she was going to have to like come clean and Taryn was going to love her anyway or something. I thought maybe she was working as a scullery maid as part of her imprisonment. Oh, and maybe that's how she figured out like how to get around a little more. Mm-hmm. But there's also the possibility that the Horned King is using that as an insult, in which case that's classist and degrading to people who perform manual labor. So also not great. Mm -hmm. On that princess note, Princess Olenui is not included in the Disney princess lineup. Mm -hmm. She's just forgotten because this movie is didn't do well and isn't well liked. And therefore she doesn't she doesn't get her her celebration. And arguably, does she deserve one? Yeah, she to me is a completely underwhelming character who at times challenges Taran, but other times is very deferential. She performs traditionally gendered tasks like mending Fluterflam's pants. <laughs> Taran explicitly says, what do girls know about swords? As a way mm-hmm. to put her down. Yeah. There's not a lot in this to make me root for Princess Ellen Wee. Yes. I think that's fair. Definitely of her in this film, in the broader, like, that's certainly not why Disney didn't include her in the princess line. I don't know that she needs to be in the princess line, but, like, if we're going to talk about princesses without any agency, Aurora is right there. That's true. That's a good point. I read an article by Rodney Fierce written in 2015 called... Isn't it romantic? Sacrificing agency for romance in the Chronicles of Perdean. This article is discussing the books specifically, but there was a quote I wanted to pull out because I think it speaks to how women and girls are portrayed in the fantasy genre. Mm -hmm. Fierce writes, quote, in young adult fantasy series, The female character is usually wise, resourceful, and spirited, creating the idea that she is stronger and more capable than her counterparts in other genres. Oftentimes, she teaches the male character what he needs to know in order to become a hero. At a certain point, however, she undergoes a physical transformation and emerges traditionally beautiful, sacrificing her agency and individuality under the guise of romantic love to become an object for the hero to win, end quote. Mm. So it's Fierce's argument that in young adult fantasy, very often there are these powerful female characters, but they typically sacrifice their agency in order to enter into a traditional heterosexual relationship. Right. And Fierce's argument is that this is the case in the Chronicles of Perdean as well with Princess Ellen Wee. I think in the Black Cauldron film adaptation, I don't think we see 
much of the first part of Princess Eleanor's yeah. trajectory. I think we mostly see her as a romantic interest for Taryn, maybe a little bit of a counterpart who kind of pushes him to reconsider his goals and priorities. But otherwise, she doesn't do a whole lot. No, honestly, she could have really been helped if they had actually like described her captivity, just like shown that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Like if she was clearly being clever or finding, you know, like an intelligent way to escape and we saw that happen and then she breaks Taryn out of his cell too because he's useless and hasn't figured out a way to do that himself. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, I'm getting out of here. You could come if you want. You can (laughs) sit here in the dark. And like she kind of has that where like she pushes open the like cement block on the base (laughs) of like the floor and is like, oh, I thought I heard voices. Maybe they could help me escape. Like, girl, you're going into a locked cell to find someone to help you escape. Mm -hmm. Went like halfway on making her like clever and figuring this out on her own and then still framing it through what Taryn knows. And then, of course, Taryn finds the sword. Taryn beats up the bad guys. At one point, she does have to tell him to use the sword (laughs) to, like, cut open the chains that hold up the drawbridge to, like, get them out. So, like, she has her moments of, like, clearly noticing things he doesn't, but Mm -hmm. they're not all that impressive. Agreed. Anything else about Princess Ellen we... That one argument that she and Taryn have kind of bugged me in the same way that the argument from the Fox and the Hound between Todd and Vixie bugged me. Mm. Taryn is excited that like he got them out of the castle. He's becoming that warrior he has always wanted to be. And she's basically like, the sword kind of did all the work. And he that's when he does the like, what does a girl know about swords anyway? And he calls her a silly girl, even if she is a princess. Mm-hmm. And like, she has a point. Maybe it's not the most polite thing to say, but honestly, I would have said the same thing if this annoying boy is over here, like <laughs> trying to pretend to be a hero. Right. But then like they go their separate ways. And first, when they come back together, Elon we offers to help first at no prompting. She's like, I will I will help us all get out of this situation or do something. And then Taryn says that he's glad that she saved him. But no one actually apologizes. Mm-hmm. And then that's supposed like that moment of like, okay, we're we're gonna move forward is supposed to be like the beginning of their romance. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't I don't see any of that. Mm-hmm. And I wish that she like, I don't know, stood up for herself more in that section and didn't immediately become like oh I have to help him because he has the sword I don't know (laughs) apparently in the books there is a lot of sexual tension between those two characters Mm. so I am guessing that their tiff in the film was an attempt at replicating that showing mm. that these aren't characters who always get along. There's more passion behind them. And thus that makes their relationship more interesting. But honestly, it just felt like a waste of time. Right. It's back to, you know, they're trying to put five books worth of work into one short movie. Mm-hmm. They don't have time to develop a relationship. 
Should we talk about the witches? Sure. Especially one of the witches? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so two of the witches look very much alike, such that they were somewhat indistinguishable to me as I was watching. Mm-hmm. The third witch is drawn differently, is drawn mm-hmm. fatter with very large breasts, longer flowing hair. Mm-hmm. I would say that she is sexualized in her animation. Yes, absolutely. And that witch takes an immediate romantic interest in Fluterflam. Mm-hmm. He is repulsed by this. Yeah. So there's this weird dynamic. It reminded me a lot of Merlin and the squirrel in Sword in the Stone. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. But of course. Yes. Of course. And it's tough because on the one hand, the witch is showing no respect, consideration, concern for Fluterflam's boundaries or mm-hmm. consent. And mm-hmm. that is problematic, of course. But also, Fluterflam's disgust with this woman, presumably because she is depicted as fat, mm-hmm. is also disturbing. Yeah. So how I identify the three witches is the tall one, the short one, and the fat one. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that happens often in this kind of trio. Mm -hmm. Like we kind of have that with the fairies and Sleeping Beauty Mm -hmm. in a way. As you said, the tall one and the short one, they look like the very traditional witch. Mostly they're a little more like skeletal. They're very thin. Angular. Yeah, kind of like the fates from Hercules. Mm. We haven't gotten there yet, but Mm -hmm. like that's the sort of the vibe. Mm -hmm. And they're very thin, like they are not conventionally pretty. Mm -hmm. And yet the third witch, the fat witch, she like is kind of putting some effort in. (laughs) Like (laughs) she's got this big flowy red hair, like she looks healthy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like You know, she is honestly probably the most attractive of the three of them and that she doesn't look like that she's 90 years old. Mm -hmm. But because she's the fat one, they've made her the joke or the repulsive one. Like, it's not as funny, and the scene is supposed to be funny, if one of the other two witches started trying to, like, court Fluterflam. Mm -hmm. They pick her because they want it to be funny and they animated her that way because they want it to be funny. I've noticed this more and more of like how the way our society approaches a certain situation makes the joke work. And so in this case, you know, the harp has broken whenever Fluterflam has lied throughout the story so far. And once she starts like flirting with him, she asks if she's pretty he says something and his heart breaks. Mm-hmm. And like, we know that means that he's lying and that's supposed to be a joke that we're all in on because of course she isn't pretty. Mm-hmm. Like that's just supposed to be accepted. Mm-hmm. And it rubbed me so much the wrong way because like she isn't among traditionally beautiful women even. Like it right. wouldn't matter if she was necessarily, but it's just like they've put so much work into singling her out by making her healthier (laughs) and like giving her giant boobs, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it just, uh, it was all so 
so intentional and so icky and unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. And fat phobic, obviously. Absolutely. This is just continuing the trend that we've seen really since Fantasia of fat shaming and fat phobia. It's also important to mention that one of the gags yep. in this scene <laughs> yeah. is that Flutterflom gets turned into a frog and uh, is then trapped between her boobs yep. and like cannot get himself out. And she thinks it's like hilarious and she can't find him. She can't find him within her own boobs. Yeah. Uh, and he's just like struggling to get out. And there's like, it's a lot of time spent staring at this like single line that <laughs> distinguishes her two boobs, mm -hmm. staring at her cleavage essentially. And it's like, so yes, probably the violence is what gave this a PG rating. But I think this scene might also have something to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of fat phobia and the complicated choices around depiction of fatness. There is one other female presenting character who is depicted as fat, and that is the gypsy who is randomly mm -hmm. dancing in the hall of the Horned King's castle. Yes. And I say gy yep. gypsy because she is depicted very traditionally with scarves and earrings and all of the stereotypical. She's also very colorful. She like stands out in this hall because all of the henchmen are in like dark colors and like in general, it's all animated in a lot of dark colors when we're in the, the evil castle and she's in like red and gold and purple. She really like draws the eye. Mm-hmm. So why is she there? Why is she a gypsy? Why is she fat? The message that I think the animators want us to take away from that is that she's a gypsy, thus she's promiscuous mm. and of interest, sexual interest to the Horned King's minions. Mm -hmm. But she's also fat and thus would not be considered attractive to quote-unquote, regular people like Taryn, right? She's mm. only attractive to people who are kind of scummy themselves. Mm. Putting her in that box means her. she's also not important. She is a part of the scenery mm -hmm. here. She is entertainment. Mm -hmm. She belongs entertaining these henchmen. She does not mm -hmm. fit anywhere else in the film. She is obviously not going to be a character we're going to come back to. Right. Yeah, all those things are assumed by that identity. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to mention that character for these reasons, but also because she seems to be the one exception to what is otherwise an all-white cast, or I should say an all-white set of characters. Mm -hmm. There are some characters who we might say are racially ambiguous because the literal color of their skin is not white. It's maybe a green or a purpley color or something, but there seems to be sort of this assumption that everyone is kind of the same race. There's maybe some creatures who aren't human, but otherwise it seems like we're just kind of in a cishet white world. Yeah, and obviously all of the people and especially all of the heroes 
are going to be cishet and white and any other color is sub character or evil. Mm -hmm. And obviously all of those are not actual representations of real people, but that doesn't like representation doesn't work both ways. Y'all you can't (laughs) not make any humans a person of color and then be like, but the, but creeper can be anything like, no, (laughs) you don't want creeper to represent anyone because he's a weird little bad guy. Yep. 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 So what do you do with that? Like this is a, a fantasy world, right? Perdean doesn't actually exist. And yet it follows the same rules of white supremacy that exist in the United States Mm -hmm. and much of Western society. So what message does that give to audiences (laughs) about what's normal? (laughs) Yeah. What's universal? Mm -hmm. Like white is the default. We don't even have to think about other characters of color it would never even come to mind that we would think of putting a black character or a Latinx character in this film or an Asian character in this film. Right. Even if we're in a totally different universe yeah. realm, etc. right? Where the rules of yeah. race shouldn't, wouldn't apply. But of course, like that place was created by a white man mm-hmm. and as you said earlier, the tiny bits of you know civilization that we see are like medieval Europe, mm-hmm. and therefore we think of the white knights that you know we've been trained to think of in fantasy. And in general, fantasy is an extremely white genre. Mm-hmm. Things are changing now, which is very welcome and wonderful. But like the canon of fantasy is all white men writing white people a lot of the time, Mm -hmm. no matter where that story is set. And if they do include people of color, you often still find those prejudices that people don't even acknowledge that they hold coming through in the books that they've written through the way that they characterize other. Mm. So, I mean, it's it's just in line with Lloyd Alexander's original work Mm -hmm. and in general, how people viewed fantasy. Like, I'm sure... Very few people even did a double take on these choices because it was just the default. The default is white. Mm -hmm. It would take a lot of thought to consider doing anything else. Right. And I'm sure that feels horrible for the animators and story people of color who were working at Disney at this time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Shall we do some Aaron's Extras? We should. Aaron's Extras. Ugh. So good. I'm going to have to like make that a real track at some point. (laughs) Something else I thought was interesting was because of how poorly the film did in the U.S. um, and how a lot of the like marketing was attributed to that. They changed the like poster and the marketing materials and even the name of the movie for much of Europe and Asia, Mm. calling it Terran and the Magic Cauldron. Interesting. The poster is much brighter. The main characters are up front and central with a lot of like sparkles and yellow light and like magic, happy. And then in the background, you still see the Horned King's castle, but the Horned King isn't on the poster anymore. Like they just removed him to try and take out that like scary aspect. And they made all the, the scary bits like really small in the back to try and 
try and give it a better shot. Mm. And it did do pretty well in France in particular, apparently. But that feels right to me. I feel like France would understand (laughs) this film. (laughs) They love dark stuff. (laughs) Two more notes on the like personnel stuff going on. So this is kind of tangential. It's around the same time, but not necessarily having to do much with the actual Black Cauldron's production. But John Lasseter was fired from Disney in 1983 for putting too much energy into his pet projects, basically, without approval, and for not considering the cost as he pursued computer animation for his projects. Mm. So, like, John Lasseter wanted to do his thing and had lots of amazing ideas that we all obviously know would come to create great stuff in the next decade. But he was pushing too hard without approval and wanted to do things that Disney could not afford yet. So they fired him. Mm. Wow. Similarly, Tim Burton's live action Frankenweenie with Disney was also released in 1984. But then Disney fired him for wasting resources on a story that was too scary for kids. Wow. While they released The Black Cauldron. Yeah. Pot calling the kettle black or cauldron calling the kettle black. Ha ha ha. Yeah, perfect. Uh, So obviously those two would not be stifled by their lack of association with Disney. No, and in fact, Tim Burton would come back around for Nightmare Before Christmas. Those are all my extras. Aaron, what grade would you give The Black Cauldron on behalf of 1985 audiences? Well, it's nice to have something different. (laughs) I'll at least (laughs) say that. People didn't like it. They didn't show up. It didn't do very well. Critics gave it some forgiveness so i will also show us a little forgiveness Mm -hmm. and i'm going to give it a c minus that seems fair yeah thank you i'm a very benevolent grader (laughs) sure sure all right what about modern audiences i mean why would you watch this movie (laughs) listeners do you like the black cauldron if so tell us why And tell us why I shouldn't assign a grade of D Mm. to the Black Cauldron. It's pretty bad. And this is interesting because I'm not giving it a D because of misogyny or racism. Although, (laughs) of course, that's in there. I'm giving it a D because it's just a bad movie. It's not very good. You know what, though? Some of the animation sequences were good. I'm going to give it a a D plus. I'm going to add a plus on there. You are also a benevolent grader. Aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not. It's not good. I agree. (laughs) I know there are people out there who like this movie. I know it has a cult following in a very different way than some of the other films we've talked about that have a cult following. So I'd be happy to hear from people. All right, Rachel, you got a recommendation that I didn't ruin for this (laughs) (laughs) week. I do have a recommendation. As I mentioned, I am not a huge fan of fantasy. I am trying to have an open mind about it and also about science fiction, which I think is a related genre. Recently, I read a book that you could consider a coming-of-age tale like the Chronicles of Perdean are. It is written by Octavia Butler, a black American writer 
often considered a science fiction writer, but I do feel like her work transcends genres. I had read several other things by Butler previously, but recently for the first time read Parable of the Sower, Mm. which was a 1993 novel. There's also a sequel, Parable of the Talents. And these are novels about a young woman, Lauren, forging a community in a post-apocalyptic world. So if you are at all interested in science fiction, in coming-of-age tales, check this book out. It's worth a read. Octavia Butler is the queen of fantasy sci-fi. She's one of the most well-known black female authors in the genre and she deserves it. She's amazing. You should absolutely read her work if you haven't. Parable of the Silver is a great place to start. So I wholeheartedly second that recommendation. <laughs> That's enough of this nonsense <laughs> because I'm ready to get to our next film, one of my all-time favorites, The Great Mouse Detective. Yay! <laughs> I am so excited. I can't wait to watch it. There are problematic bits. I want you to go in knowing that. Okay. It's not absolutely perfect and you think it's perfect and I have to like burst your bubble. (laughs) Right. Like I already know several parts that are not good, but (laughs) the rest of it's really good. So. Okay. Buckle up. Get ready. And uh, listeners... You could email us at hellodeconstructingdisney at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at DeconDisney, and you can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. Ta-ta for now.